0: With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at chime.com/build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members of FDIC. Results may vary. See chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com/disclosures for details. Hey, it's Martine. Before we start today's show, a quick request from us here at the Post: We are looking for people who have student loans and who have had those payments frozen during the pandemic. We want to talk to you about what you've been able to do with that money that you weren't spending on loans. Have you bought a house, saved money for retirement, or started a business? Or maybe something smaller or weirder? Did you buy a new violin or an exotic animal? No matter what you're doing with the money, we want to hear from you. There is a submission form in our show notes and at postreports.com. And thanks.
1: So human rights groups have successfully persuaded the U.S. government and governments of a few other Western countries to diplomatically boycott the Beijing Games over China's human rights abuses. But they've failed to convince corporate sponsors of the Games to drop their sponsorships or even to speak out much about China's human rights abuses because the financial stakes here for companies are so huge.
0: Jean Whalen covers global business for The Post, and recently she has been reporting on this awkward split screen heading into the Beijing Winter Olympics. While the U.S. and other governments are boycotting, American and European companies are very much not. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 1st. Today, we're talking about how businesses are facing hard questions around corporate responsibility, from human rights in the Olympics to diversity in the C-suite.
1: China is the world's second biggest economy, and for many of these companies, it is one of their biggest markets, if not their biggest market, the place where they earn a lot of their sales. And China's rulers have been... Very sensitive about any criticism of China in recent years. They have gone out of their way to punish companies that either openly criticize human rights abuses in Hong Kong or Tibet or the northwestern region of Xinjiang, where human rights groups and Western governments, including the United States, say that China has held up to a million people from the minority population called the Uyghurs in detention camps. They've gone out of their way to punish companies that speak out openly against those abuses, or even companies that kind of obliquely refer to any of those sensitive human rights issues. They will get the state media to write lots of stories about the bad Western companies and how they are disrespecting China. That sometimes then leads to big social media backlash against the companies and consumer boycotts of their products. And so companies are walking a tightrope between wanting to not offend one of their biggest markets and listening to human rights groups who have very legitimate complaints about the way China is treating various populations.
0: So what companies are we talking about here that have basically decided to continue to be big supporters of the Beijing Olympics while all of these concerns are swirling around them about whether they're essentially supporting human rights abuses?
1: So there are 13 global sponsors of the Beijing Games, and these are corporate sponsors who typically sign on to be sponsors of several Olympic Games in a row. So they'll sign on to four-year or eight-year or 10-year sponsorship deals, and they sponsor a series of games. So it's Coca-Cola, Intel, Airbnb, Allianz, the German financial services company... Bridgestone Tires, Panasonic, Procter & Gamble, Samsung, Toyota, and Omega, the Swiss watch company.
0: And what did these companies say when you reached out to them to ask about their sponsorship of the Beijing Olympics?
1: Several companies didn't respond at all. A few did respond with very general and kind of vague answers about how they respect human rights but consider themselves to be sponsors of an athletic tradition, not necessarily sponsors of any one country or city hosting the games. Most of them declined to comment at all on China's human rights abuses, on its repression of certain populations. Uh, In fact, I think all of them declined to comment on that. They've been very sensitive about um, acknowledging publicly at all that there is a problem here.
0: What is your sense of the gamble that they're making here or the risks of continuing to support the Olympics in Beijing? I mean, are they just essentially betting that the average American doesn't really care or isn't paying enough attention to uh, really make a difference whether or not they are uh, tacitly supporting human rights abuses in China?
1: Human rights groups say that the companies are betting that the American public just isn't paying that much attention, that most people in the U.S. watching the broadcasts probably don't know that much about these issues in China. This is not top of mind for Americans, that most Americans want to tune in and watch their favorite sports competition, and that they're better off the companies just keeping silent And perhaps maybe not advertising these games as much as they would normal games, but certainly not speaking out, not dropping their sponsorships, because ultimately the Chinese market is extremely important to many of their bottom lines.
0: So I wonder what effect you think that this has ultimately on the diplomatic boycott of these Olympics? Like, even if the U.S. government is making this show of, look, we're not going to send important leaders there or give these Olympics any pomp or circumstance. I mean, if you have these huge companies, especially American companies, that are continuing to support these Olympics, then does the diplomatic boycott even matter?
1: So the diplomatic boycott has definitely hurt. But ultimately, China's power on the global stage derives from the fact that it is a huge economic power, that it has incredibly important trade ties with most of the countries and the companies in the world. And China knows that, and it knows that so long as Western companies are still on board, still committed to doing business in China, still reliant on profits and sales in China, that they will not go out of their way to oppose China publicly, and that that is where China's power really lies. And so as long as China can keep its economic ties strong with the Western world, it knows that it will have a place on the world stage and among the the ultimate world powers.
0: Jean Whalen covers global business for The Post. Maggie Penman produced this story. After the break... We talked to business reporter Tracy Jan about the lack of diversity in corporate America and how chief diversity officers are sometimes set up to
2: fail. We'll be right back. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. So in 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, corporate America came out of the woodwork and proclaimed for the first time that Black Lives Matter
0: This is Tracy Jan. She reports on race and the economy. Recently, she and a few of our colleagues at The Post did an analysis of the 50 most valuable public companies in the US. And their findings were really striking. Black employees still make up an incredibly small fraction of top executives, despite big promises after the summer of 2020.
2: They decided to make all these promises of where they would expend their resources and also try to diversify their company ranks, not just bringing in more diverse employees, but also diversifying the very top of the organization, the C-suite, where people hold the most power, earn the most money. So I wanted to know, more than a year later, how are Black executives experiencing this new corporate America?
0: So you use the term the C-suite, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what kind of jobs we are actually talking about here. Virtually all
2: companies promise to diversify their pipeline and not just who they brought in as talent at the lower levels, but who they were promoting. And it's really people at the top, the so-called C-suite that hold the most power. And by C-suite, I'm referring to the CEO, and typically all the people that report to him or her. In this case, mostly him. And they typically include the chief operating officer, the chief financial officers, all the various chiefs. And it could be anywhere from, you know, some organizations only have five people that they consider in their C-suite. Others have more than a dozen. And one of the things that companies have begun doing over the last year and a half is promoting their chief diversity officers into the C-suite level. Chief diversity officers obviously have chief in their title, but oftentimes, and it's still the case, most of them report to human resources and are not considered part of the C-suite. But more companies have begun raising their profile as they have tried to emphasize the importance of racial justice within their organization.
0: As you mentioned, we saw a lot of these pronouncements about the need for change at companies in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. I think there was a lot of criticism that this was just giving lip service to the thing that was animating a lot of people in the moment. But I wonder if you feel like the death of George Floyd and the moment of activism and outcry after that did have a significant impact on how these companies were really looking at what they do and how they do it.
2: There's definitely still ongoing grumblings about the fact that this is all window dressing. I think the thing that's different now is that their employees are really, really pushing the executives to make a change. And employees these days hold a lot more power, right? There's a labor shortage. A lot of them are younger. And the younger generation is really vocal. And they're very public about it. They're not just vocal internally, but they're vocal on social media. And a lot of companies are very mindful of the image that they put out in the world. We're focusing on the top 50 companies, most valuable publicly traded companies in America, typically the largest ones. And they span industries from tech to retail, restaurants, food service. And companies have been promising for decades that they needed to diversify. They've recognized this. Companies started talking about this during the LA riots after Rodney King, And there's been a lot of pressure from activists. Now the pressure is coming from their own employees. So
0: for the Black professionals that you talked to, what did they have to say about their experiences?
2: Wendy Lewis was the chief global diversity officer at McDonald's. And when she came in for her interview, she actually told them that she felt like executives, the CEO, other top executives need to be held accountable for all these diversity goals. And to do that, they really need to tie them into their pay, their paychecks, Mm -hmm. their executive compensation. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until George Floyd's murder that most companies started looking into this. And it's still not a majority of the companies do this.
3: A Black man dying, unfortunately and unjustly, at the hands of law enforcement wasn't a first. Literally, these organizations woke up to the reality that this is really happening.
2: So they announced, actually, after Wendy left the company, after after Floyd's death, that they would start tying executive bonuses to specific diversity measures. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow.
0: That's actually, I mean, I could see that being extremely motivating for people if how much money they're going to earn at the end of the year is, in fact, dependent on whether or not they actually hold themselves accountable for these diversity goals.
2: At McDonald's, 15% of executive bonuses would actually be based on increasing representation and leadership for underrepresented groups, including women and Black executives and other people who have been historically underrepresented. But there's another side to it, right? There are companies that have tried this and found that it incentivizes the wrong behaviors. If you're simply focusing on recruitment but not retention, that is obviously a bad thing because you Hmm. could incentivize people to jack up their bonuses by recruiting all these people of color. But then if they leave, then there's no consequence. Mm -hmm. So companies have to be careful about looking at this holistically, which they're starting to.
0: I'm curious if Wendy had been asking for stuff like this for years. I mean, what was it like for her to see some of that actually come to pass?
2: So she was pleased that this happened, even though it happened after she left. But she wants to see more. She wants not just bonuses tied to diversity goals and successes, but their actual compensation, their base compensation. And she wants to see higher percentages of their compensation tied to this. Look, they're saying, not just Wendy, but chief diversity officers who really care about this are saying, if you really... Take this seriously. You should treat diversity like any other business performance outcome. You know, people who bring in revenue for companies get rewarded. That's like a key thing. If you don't do your job, you get fired. I spoke with another longtime, very well-respected diversity chief at a tech company. When she took on the role, she said, make me accountable. I want to report to the CEO That means if I don't do my job, fire me, but I need the resources and the the clout, the platform to do my job, and I want to be held accountable for it. And too often, many chief diversity officers, both current and former, say that some people are put into these positions simply because they're a woman of color or a person of color, And that they don't actually have the company relationships in order to do this job. They don't have the background to do this job because they feel like some companies elevate them as window dressing.
3: I was called by HR and asked to take the role on. I said, no, or let me get back to you because you never say no to your boss. So Jackie Glenn
2: was the former vice president of diversity at EMC, which was later bought out by Dell. And her experience is not unlike many other chief diversity officers who I spoke
3: with. And I'll tell you why I didn't want to take the role. I was one of a few Black people there. And I didn't want to be the tall Black woman with the accent doing diversity. And it wasn't my career aspiration to be a chief diversity officer. And I saw how the other woman, the struggle she had, They had
2: chief in their title, but they weren't treated as chiefs. They didn't get the benefits other chiefs got in terms of resources, in terms of compensation. They weren't actually at the table for real.
3: I was a chief diversity officer when there wasn't a whole lot of chief diversity officers around, when there wasn't a whole lot of company focusing on diversity. So I do believe that my company did a lot of things right. As my mom would like to say, their heart was willing but their flesh was weak.
2: So when Jackie first started as the vice president of diversity, she was she felt she was underpaid. She didn't have the resources, not having the staff, not having the budget.
3: I was significantly underpaid in double digit compared to my peers' direct report. Not my peers, my peer direct report. And that, you know, I had... For the 60,000 employee, I probably had two people reporting me and a tiny, tiny budget, which I thought I was getting more than my predecessor. Now, Jackie is a consultant, and she and other
2: diversity officers have transitioned from working for one corporation, becoming consultants, working for many corporations who say they want to do this work. But she and others have told me that they've gotten their contracts canceled when they actually start doing this work and talk about internal cultures, some companies just cannot bear to hear the truth or have the truth be known.
0: Wow. So then what do you think is the solution here? Or what did the people that you talked to say they wanted to see for these jobs to actually be able to make a difference?
2: So what Chevron has actually begun to do is to introduce these inclusion counselors in their meetings where they assign promotions. So these are peers who are neutral observers who sit in on these twice-yearly job meetings. And their job is to listen for biases and to help the people who are in positions of power avoid groupthink. So for example, if we're talking about three employees and you want to give one of them a plum assignment and one candidate is just not really being discussed because no one in the room knows that person— Well, the job of the inclusion counselor is to say, wait a minute, just because you five people don't know this person doesn't mean this person is not good at their job or doesn't deserve this promotion. So let's take a time out. You all go find out someone who knows this person and their work and then come back and we can have a more fair, holistic discussion about who deserves this promotion or this job assignment. So just taking that step to make sure that it's not just A bunch of white guys in a room promoting this other white guy that they know very well because they golf together is a step. And it sounds like a cliche, but that stuff actually happens. So what do you think your
0: reporting has shown to you about what it takes to actually change the
2: system in a more profound way? This work is really difficult. In some ways, it shouldn't be, right? Because you have the numbers. And People just have to acknowledge that systemic racism exists. But that's the difficult part. For a lot of companies, people who are in the majority who have power, typically white people, don't want to give up that power. If you put it in those terms of giving up power, it's just something that human nature, people
3: don't want to give up. I think uh, folks uh, feel that the more empowered some become, the less powerful they will be. And I think there is a really bad graphic in the head of a lot of folks of what that pie is and how big the pieces really are. And it tends to be limited when the reality is it's as vast as the imagination.
2: The most key point that these chief diversity officers told me is that they need to have the support of the CEO. And the CEO, the board, the top, top executives need to really care about this and to show that they care about this in order to give these chief diversity officers a platform to do their job. And to show that by promoting them into the C-suite, by giving them the resources, the financial resources, as well as the employees to carry out this work,
0: Tracy Jan reports on race and the economy at the Post. This story was produced by Jordan Murray Smith. Before we end the show, we've got one more thing about Wordle. I am one of the many people who's currently obsessed with Wordle. It's this extremely simple internet puzzle that gives you six chances to guess one five-letter word every day. And you may have heard the Wordle origin story. It was created by this guy as a game for his partner, literally just her. She liked the game, so they sent it to their friends, then their friends sent it to their friends... Back at the beginning of November, there were only about 90 people playing Wordle. But now, that number is in the millions. And I am one of those people. Every morning for the past month, the first thing I do when I wake up is I roll over, I grab my phone, I open up the little tab that I have with Wordle in it, and then I just let my brain bask in the peaceful joy of this five-minute puzzle. Well, there is some news from Monday night. It turns out that Wordle has been bought by the New York Times. No, I am not jealous at all. According to our colleague, media reporter Alahe Zadi, the game was sold for an amount that is in the low seven figures. So in other words, that is more than a million dollars. According to the Wordle inventor, the plan is for players' current wins and winning streaks to be preserved. But while the game is going to stay free for now, it is unclear whether that will be the case into the future. Maybe this is the end of an era, of Wordle as this rare, totally pure source of Internet joy. Or maybe not. But in the meantime, if you want to share your Wordle score, I am so game to see it. Post it on Twitter with the hashtag PostReports or email us at PostReports at WatchPost.com. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. The show was mixed by Sam Baer and Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman and Ariel Plotnick. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
2: Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits
1: apply.